BJJ, wrestling, Krav Maga. What is the answer for a self-defense encounter? Ice baths, are they gimmicky? And listen, guys, are knife people weird? I'm posing that question to you. We tackle all of those questions and more with Aaron Gennetti of Endeavor Defense and Fitness and Knife Control Concepts. I have taken Aaron's course, Knife Control Concepts. I cannot recommend it enough. Alongside Mike Cheney and Eli Knight, they do an incredible job. But Aaron's one of those personalities that is very fun. He has an infectious laugh, and the guy knows what he's talking about as it pertains to self-defense. I was so excited for this episode, but it turned out so much better than I could have hoped. Aaron is a very fun personality to talk to, and we tackle a lot of issues that are both serious and fun in today's episode, and I know you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, guys, episode four of the Sit, Wait, and Talk podcast, Aaron Gennetti. Welcome to the Sit, Wait, and Talk show, a podcast for protectors by protectors. Remember, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So join us to stay ready for the fight ahead. Barricaded suspects with hostages at St. Dimitri's Church. This is the police. Come out with your hands up. Do it now. We have suspect movement. Entry team is in. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we were SWAT. Aren't we supposed to just sit here and wait? Bang out! The Sit, Wait, and Talk podcast is powered by Force Frontier. All right, Aaron. So rapid fire questions. Don't take the easy way out. All right. It's one or the other. Okay. You got to pick. You ready? Oh, yes. All right. Gi or no gi? Uh, no gi. You had to think about that. Pull guard or shoot for a takedown? I did. Sorry. Takedown. Ice bath or hot tub? Hot tub. Really? That one surprises me. All right. Let's keep yeah. going. Yeah. Liquid death? We'll talk about that later. Liquid death or life water? Oh, liquid death. Of course. Knife or gun? Oh, shit. Gun. Krav Maga or jiu-jitsu? Oh, that's fucked up. Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> okay. And the last one, pineapple on your pizza, yes or no? Fuck no. Okay. <laughs> I respect it. I hope I'm, I hope I'm allowed to swear because I'm already four in. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. That's what I got the beat button for. We're good. Um, Dang, man. The, 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 the go with your gut and don't think about it is hard because I'm thinking like context, like gun or knife, what's the situation? Do you... Do you have the gun or the knife, or do I have the gun or the knife? Like, Kramagar, BJJ, what are we talking about? All right, anyway, I love it. No, 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 I, yeah. I, I think context in training, as you do so often, yeah. is the most important thing. But, you know, that's not what we're doing 100%. here. So hot. T- <laughs> I got to ask you about the <laughs> so hot tub. I thought about. you were going to pick hot ice bath. I could have sworn you were going to pick ice bath. Well, so that's the thing. Like, everybody uh, – I, I love ice baths for anybody listening to this um, – Ice baths to me are a tool for improvement. Uh, it's a tool for managing stress. Um, hands down, it's one of, I think one of the best tools, at least for me and for the people that I work with, like the athletes and fighters that I work with. Uh, it's hands down the best tool for teaching people how to deal with stress. However, like if I have access to a friggin' hot tub, like I want to go sit in a hot tub. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to better my life when I get into the hot tub. When I get to the ice bath, it's like, all right, I have an intention, it's a tool, it's kinda, you know, it is what it is. So uh yeah, I mean, I love hot tubs, man. Hot tubs are freaking awesome. Okay, and so, I love ice. So you are but if I had to if you had to like say one or the other forever, I would go hot I would go a freaking hot tub. Okay. Yeah. Hell yeah, I'm human. I'm just superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. My wife actually just bought me an uh an ice bath for my birthday. Yes. 
and no shit which like like a tub it's or just like a, a tub. nice one it's just a tub yeah yeah nothing crazy Perfect. uh nothing crazy just a tub and just filling it up i have to set it up but it's like i know once i set it up i have to get in it so it's kind of a mental thing for me yeah. i'm kind of putting it off but um no i well, mean you're, as a, you're, it's winter <clears throat> he's gotta throw some water in that bad boy and let it freeze man <laughs> exactly it'll definitely be easier this time of year um but yeah i just yeah, uh yeah. i still have nightmares from the from the time you made me do it so <laughs> made you that's messed up Don't well I, my mouth. it was it was uh it was a pressure that i had felt and i was like i gotta do it i gotta try it at least once and as my body breaks down i'm like that's good i don't know i just feel so banged up lately i just like ah this will be good for me yeah all right so aaron for those Our physiological benefits of it are great Look yeah well, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff backing it and it's, I know it's, I know it's not just a gimmick online, so, uh, it'll be yeah. good to get in there and, and start to reap the rewards from it. But it's just a matter of, you know, like I said, putting this stupid thing together and jumping in. Um, yeah, Aaron, talk a little bit about your background. You have, uh, you know, you and I have discussed before. Um, I, I think you have a innovative mind for this kind of thing for self-defense and uh, give the listeners a little bit insight of who you are, the background, um, where you got started with all this, this whole journey. Sure. Uh, yeah. So as far as like martial arts goes, um, I started in Krav Maga in 2008. Uh, I was at Ohio state at the time and I had a bunch of baddish stuff was happening in my life. So I was going to either go out and fight people <laughs> in bars, uh, or I was going to find some place to do it maybe a little more productively. Um, so I found a Krav Maga gym. I was actually watching Fight Quest uh, for anybody that remembers that show. Uh, and there was a commercial for a local Krav Maga gym. So I went there. I started taking classes. And uh, I, that was, I mean, the end after that, I stayed. Um, so much so, I was there so much that the guy very quickly was like, hey, man, do you want a key? You know, hey, do you want to start coaching? And uh, very soon after that, within a couple of years, um, not even a couple of years, within two years, I had helped him open up a second location been certified in two different uh, uh, arts at that point, one of them being Krav Maga, uh, and then dropped out of college and started teaching and training full-time. Um, so, so for the last 15 years, I was 2008, I've nonstop trained kickboxing, Krav Maga, Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, ju I, I say Jiu-Jitsu loosely in regard to like wrestling and like all the grappling arts, but Jiu-Jitsu is obviously where you get belts and stuff. Uh, um, firearms offensive, defensive knife stuff. I've done Balintawa Kali. Um, I've done other forms of, of Arnis and Kali as well. Um, I've done, I mean, I even dabbled in a couple of classes in like Capoeira and Texas. I like learning, so I get out and do a lot of stuff. But primarily, what I've evolved to into my self-defense, the way I teach and also the way I personally train um, is a very like Greco-Roman and then wrestling jiu-jitsu style with the Krav Maga context of self-defense behind it um, and a lot of kickboxing and guns and knives. Um, but like you said, it's, uh, I, I think to the point, like everybody kind of creates their own style, no matter what your background is, you know, so not all BJJ practitioners are the same by any means, not all kickboxers are the same by any means. So it's the same thing. 15 years in, I've, I've got my style and beliefs on um, all of the different areas and things I've pulled and start to create Jinetti Jitsu or whatever version of my martial art uh you know that i kind of portray forward so but yeah i mean as far as background in martial arts that's that's that um i teach full-time i own a training center here in columbus ohio uh called endeavor defensive fitness and then i travel around the country um 
teaching uh, various different systems. The big one that we've been doing a lot the last few years, uh, you know, which is where you and I first met, was with uh, Knife Control Concepts. Um, so we travel around and teach two-day courses on a, a, a pragmatic approach to dealing with the entanglement. Uh, but I've also traveled around doing active shooter courses. Uh, I travel around teaching other aspects of self-defense, you know, whenever I can. Yeah, you definitely, so that's that. you have like a, so you're <laughs> saying you, you have a curious mind and you want to experience kind of I love it. everything that martial arts has to offer. But then throughout that Hands journey, down. you're finding what works for you and what you feel is the best approach to that, to a self-defense encounter. Yeah. Yeah. If it was up to me, if I was, um, you know, I found Krav Maga when I was like 20. So, well, 21, I guess like right about 21. Cause I'm 37 now coming up on 16 years of this. And it, like back then, you know, before I met my wife and before we had kids and I, all I did was train I had a lot of time and I, man, if I had that kind of time, I, I mean, I would be taking Taekwondo. I wouldn't even care. Cause it's like, how do you get better at doing kicks and balance and positioning and speed? It's like, go learn Taekwondo and other various things that way. Uh, we have a guy in our gym that does like an old feudal samurai sword system um, called TSYR that if I had the time, I would be hanging out with him a hell of a lot more, you know? It's so it's one of those areas that, and I think a lot of people need to understand this, the context of your life and your life is going to dictate the amount of time you have. And so then you have to start prioritizing things. I was blessed that when I got into martial arts full time for the better part of a decade, I had freedom. So I had time and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really tied down to anything so I could travel. I could explore a lot of things. And I, I trained a lot, like six to seven days a week, multiple hours, different systems, you blint to walk in the morning, you know, jujitsu followed by CrossFit, doing Krav Maga in the evenings, going off and shooting, you know, the next morning. And so I had the opportunity to do that. You know, I own a business now. I travel around a lot. So now I have to prioritize. I have to focus a little bit more. Um, personally, I've been I've been focusing the majority of my my martial arts journey at the moment towards, you know, my black belt in jujitsu. I'm a three-stripe brown belt. So I spend a lot of time there, which makes you feel good as a student. Uh, but you know, it's if I, I mean, if I had all the time in the world and my kids weren't in the house and, you know, that type of stuff, and I didn't like hanging out with my wife so much, I would probably still be doing whatever the hell I get my hands on. I mean, hell, I would take, you know, Salat or some weird Russian stuff if I needed to. <laughs> so I think curious mind is really good. But then you have to understand your context because that's a, you know, from a training, you know, this as a law enforcement officer and a human, you know, an adult human, you're limited on time. You're limited on the context of what you need, so you have to prioritize. And so if you're somebody that's only got an hour or two hours, the real question becomes how do I make the most out of two hours a week versus, well, I'll just do whatever because training is training. It's like, well, not really. Like what's the context of your job? If you're a law enforcement officer, there's a couple of buckets that you really need to fill from a skill set standpoint, and you got to focus your attention there. If you're a 20-year-old that doesn't need to work, still lives in your parents' house, and you can train 10 hours a day, then you know, do whatever the hell you want, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you fair know, enough. but have fun with it. Is there any advice you would give on that same notion to the ever, you know, the every man, somebody that's just, you know, working time is restricted for them. Is there any advice you would give in terms of, no. or any path you would lead them down, uh, down that journey for self-defense purposes? Yeah, hands down. And it's honestly, it starts with killing a lot of the excuses, a lot of the excuses, um, that 
we see generate and populate the most is like, well, I don't have the time. You know, that's kind of bullshit these days. Not, not just these days. What I mean by these days is everything is online now. Now, online is not the best, in my opinion, online is not the best way to learn. The best way to learn is to be present with a coach that can guide you through and curate drills and see how you're doing and make corrections and all that type of stuff. But the excuse that you don't have access to the information is no longer there. Everything is online. If you have the commitment, the willpower in, in any type of discipline, you could literally train yourself as long as you have a training partner in 10 minutes. Um, so one of the big excuses is like, I don't have time. It's like, look, just get the information online, set aside 10 or 15 minutes by yourself, even if you're solo drilling. So like the first thing is kill your, let's be real bullshit excuses. You know, well, I've got to get in shape before I do that. Well, I agree, right? If you're, if your first piece of the puzzle is that you're out of shape, you're overweight, you're not eating well, you're not sleeping well, that that's the first place you start. Because physical fitness is self-defense, in my opinion. It's how I protect my family. If I need to pick my family up, run away, get them out of a fire, that's part of it. It's got to be physical fitness. If I'm, fuck, you know, I'd say it, but if I'm overweight and out of shape, you know, you're pretty much a disservice to the people that you care about and you're attempting to protect because you're not physically capable to do it. So if you're on a limited timeline, the first block and bucket you need to fill is physical fitness. There's no excuse to, to not do that. You can wake up in the morning for 10 minutes and find an online physical like fitness routine that's all body weight. Like you can do it. We just don't like to do it. It's uncomfortable sometimes and it's a pain in the ass sometimes and that's just the way it is. So you got to kill your excuses. Start physical fitness is the first place. I don't care how good you are at jujitsu. If you can't run, jump, lift things, you know, all that type stuff, most of the shit you're going to run into to actually protect yourself and your loved ones has nothing to do with a gun defense or a knife defense. It has everything to do with you being capable. So start there with physical fitness. If you got the physical fitness on lockdown or you have a little bit of extra time, then, you know, like we said, it kind of goes to context. In my opinion, it's solely my opinion, but based off of, you know, 16 years in the self-defense realm, from an open hand skill set, I think most people need to start in like a Greco-Roman wrestling style, which is really just stand-up wrestling, right? To learn how to control somebody standing, execute takedowns from standing that aren't like shooting double legs or anything weird. Um, and then have a baseline of top control in wrestling and then have a baseline of, you know, you could even start with just basic boxing. If you can throw some punches and, and, and top control wrestle pretty well, I think that's the, the best place to start. Now, the problem with that, cause this is an information piece is you're, you're not going, it, it is hard to find an adult like Greco-Roman wrestling program, you know? So you're either going to find a really good self-defense gym like we have, which the self-defense program, not our BJJ program, our self-defense program is, again, everything that I believe off of everything I've learned over the years is the most practical. So we're going to be doing Greco-Roman wrestling. We're going to be doing some jujitsu off the back to get off of our back. We're going to be doing kickboxing. We're going to be doing shooting. We're going to be doing knives. It's all packaged into one little package. It's all you need. You don't need to go anywhere else. If you don't have access to a gym like that, then you're probably going to have to find a kickboxing gym or a BJJ gym. You know, okay, good. So go find a BJJ gym or find a kickboxing gym or a gym that does both and then try to fill that bucket the best way you can and just understand that, you know, I mean, let's be real. 80% of jiu-jitsu is not real for self-defense. You know what I mean? It's still sport application no matter 
how much the BJJ guys, respectfully, as a BJJ guy, no matter how much they want to say it's self-defense, you know, if they're not talking about pre-contact cues and verbalization and weapons and strikes, and they're throwing hip tosses and arm bars to answer every single equation, then it's not self-defense at that point. So you just have to understand you're building a physical skill set and just know where the context actually matters and where it doesn't, and, and that's fine as far as I'm concerned. So to bucket all that together, first off, 99.9% of the excuses people make for why they don't train are absolute horseshit. If you can commit 15 minutes a day, you can get something done. So that's like piece number one. And piece number two, start with physical fitness. A healthier human is harder to kill. A healthier human is more uh, uh, favorable to the people they love if they're trying to protect them, even just from not dying early, which is always a good thing. Um, and then once you get past that, you know, in my opinion, Greco-Roman wrestling, boxing is a really freaking awesome place to start. And then you can start to kind of branch some things off of that. But if you don't have access to that, Jiu-jitsu gyms, I mean, you can throw a rock in any direction in any city, and you're going to find at least one jiu-jitsu gym at this point. So find a jiu-jitsu gym, find a kickboxing gym, and learn how to hurt people. Yeah, fair enough. And this, I want to ask you something, because you, you touched on the physical fitness side of things, and I think, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. But in the jiu-jitsu community, not, not, not painting with a broad brush, but there is a sentiment that you don't need this, like, program to get you in shape jiu-jitsu gets you in shape and you look at wrestling programs across the board you look at judo programs across the board part of their curriculum is physical fitness and getting you to the point where you are more capable and i don't think it's necessarily you know we want to get you to this point we just want you to be the best version of yourself that's how i've always looked at it and in my experience, yeah. that is kind of lost in, in large part on um, a lot of jujitsu schools. And uh, have you have you found that yeah. to be the case? I mean, in your experience now, I know your gym is runs runs it a little bit differently, but yeah. So we're like at our gym, we run multiple programs, and though the programs are under one roof, and you have access to all of the programs, they still are their own separate entities. So if somebody comes to us and says, "Hey, I want to learn jujitsu," I'm not shoving self-defense and firearms down their throat. It's like, look, if you want jiu-jitsu, go to the jiu-jitsu program. We have jiu-jitsu six days a week, plenty of different time slots, and you're going to learn jiu-jitsu. We might mention some things about self-defense, but it's jiu-jitsu. Like, we know what jiu-jitsu is. If you're here for self-defense, I want to learn to protect myself. What program should I do? Well, then you need to be in the hybrid program. Like, that is the program that is built for pragmatic self-defense. If you want fitness, we have a full-blown CrossFit program. I say that loosely, like, We've been around CrossFit for so long. We're actually very, 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 very good coaches with different degrees and certifications. But we have a full-blown CrossFit program. We have heavy bag classes, steel mace classes, whatever you want. So for us, it's very easy. If I look at you and go, hey, man, your technique is great, but you're getting tossed around by guys in your weight division because you're weak, then you need to go start taking some CrossFit classes and do some heavy barbell lifting, right? Like get stronger. So it's a little easier for us. It's also a little different. There's not a lot of gyms that have <clears throat> multiple – standalone programs that you can just literally hop between. You can do whatever you want. You get ADD and you're like, man, I'm bored of CrossFit. Go do jiu-jitsu. I'm bored of jiu-jitsu. Go do Krav Maga. You can mess around all you want. Um, in most cases, that's not going to be the place that it is. I, I thoroughly agree. I personally think from what I've seen now, my experience with judo, like true judo is, is uh, definitely limited. And I have more experience with wrestling and definitely more experience with jujitsu. But the physicality of wrestling, in my opinion, is 
way beyond what jujitsu will ever be. And and ju- wrestling is you can go almost a hundred and ten percent nonstop in almost every training session. And yeah, obviously some big aggressive takedowns are going to mess some stuff up, but I don't have to worry about the dude snapping my knee in a heel hook or whatever that type stuff is. So there's just an aggression level about the goal of wrestling is to be on top. And if I'm not on top, I'm doing everything in my freaking power to get back on top. That's a completely different mindset than jujitsu where I think the physicality starts to lack in jujitsu is we get comfortable on our back. And again, like, from a sport jiu-jitsu standpoint, which I love the sport of jiu-jitsu and I love the art of it. Like I, I truly, that's why I do it. So I, you know, people always, you know, Hey, you rag on jiu-jitsu. I don't rag on jiu-jitsu. I know what jiu-jitsu is and it's a beautiful art. It's an incredible sport and it's a good skill set to have, but it is not my, in my opinion, it is not self-defense. It's not a holistic self-defense program. But if you think about the art and sport of jiu-jitsu, Think about all the dumb bullshit stuff that happens that requires 100% less energy. You know what I mean? Like pulling guard, you know, like you said, takedown or pulling guard, like pulling guard. Is it a smart thing to do in sport jiu-jitsu if you're a good guard player? Absolutely, especially if you're going to attack legs or if you're just confident there. But is it physical? No. You walk up and sit. And is there a physicality to playing guard? Sure, but not nearly the same physicality as if you and the other person are trying to stay on top. And that is the only objective of it. The physicality to me in wrestling is way beyond just naturally. The physicality in wrestling is way beyond what jujitsu will ever be. Even though jujitsu is very physical. Now, if we're talking personal protection, family protection, if I am not adding strength, which jujitsu does not add strength, I don't care what anybody says. Are you going to get stronger? Yes. If you're starting from zero, you know, you're 50 pounds overweight, you've never lifted a weight in your life, well, of course, you're going to naturally get good at things as long as you start being physically active. You're going to shed a few pounds, and yes, you're going to get stronger. But there's a massive difference in fighting a human, right, maybe pulling on their gi, pulling guard, playing underneath, even if you are a top player and hit takedowns, like whatever. There's a huge difference in that than – oh, now I have to pick up my 45-pound child and my you know 37-pound child, and I have to sprint a mile. That's not the same. Oh, I learned how to do that in jiu-jitsu. No, you didn't. Like, you did better than when you were overweight, but you're not getting that. You know, I, uh, you know I'm, I'm barricading a door, and I got to move a heavy filing cabinet and tip it over. It's like, you know, that, that strength is not naturally coming from the art of jiu-jitsu. It's not naturally coming from the art of, uh, uh, you know, Krav Maga. It's not naturally, sure as shit isn't coming from Kali. So to me, like the strength and fitness, the strength and conditioning element of it is self-defense because there's so much more to self-defense. I might need to climb shit, right? Like if I need to climb over a wall because a guy's chasing me with a knife and I... I'm not going to stop and use my jujitsu on a guy with a knife. If I can turn and jump over a six foot wall, like that's stupid as hell. So I need the physicality, the physical fitness to be able to sprint fast, jump high, climb over things, lift heavy things, drag things, carry things. And you are not reaching the full potential of that by doing jujitsu. And, and there's no way to spin that. And, and again, it's not just jujitsu. You're not getting that in 
Krav Maga, you're not getting that in Kali. You're sure shit not getting it in firearms training. It's just not happening that way. So in wrestling, I think there's a physical element of it because they realize how much physicality is in it. But even wrestling teams are going to be whiffs and weights. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, shit, dude, you got to get in there and you got to move some stuff. So if you're limited on time and the only thing, like you're like, man, I'm going to go do jujitsu and I'm going to double down on it. It'll lose some weight. Get me a little bit healthier. Awesome. But at a certain point, you're going to plateau on the physical fitness side of thing. And jujitsu only resolves a certain subset of the entirety of what is protection. You know what I mean? Like protection is I'm in a car accident and like how, how well put together and healthy is my body that, you know, with a potentially broken bone or getting thrashed at 70 miles an hour, like how does my body withstand impact? That's, that's, I mean, there are legitimate, you know, research and studies on bone density from Olympic weightlifting. There's not legitimate studies on bone density from jujitsu. You know what I mean? So there's an element of being able to move things, carry things, lift weights that I think at a certain point you're fooling yourself and it's okay if you do, if you can look at it and go, look, I'm not going to get strong doing jujitsu and I'm okay with that, then I'm fine with that. As long as you know it, I, I usually have a problem, you know, generally if I'm gonna have a problem, it's when people try to sell something as something it's obviously not, you're not getting stronger. You might get stronger if you're weak, then yes, do any physical fitness. If you did 50 burpees a day, you would get stronger, right? But you're not getting strong. There's two differences there. So, you know, to, to kind of button this up again to your point, will jujitsu get you healthier? Absolutely. Boxing will get you healthier. Kickboxing will get you healthier. Wrestling will get you healthier. Judo will get you healthier. I think judo, and I don't know a ton about judo in a traditional sense, but man, what I've seen, judo practices seem way harder than most of my jujitsu practices. But, but if I'm, if you get to a certain point and you're like, no, I actually want to have a conditioning, a strength and a conditioning, you're not, you don't, you're not looking at that more as a side effect anymore. Now you have to actually approach that thing. And maybe it's once a week, maybe it's twice a week. If you train, uh, I think somebody went to a Wagner Roca seminar and came back. And one of the things that he said that I thought was fascinating, I wasn't there for it, but somebody came back and told me at our gym, he had said that if you're training jujitsu six days a week and you're not lifting weights, you need to change two of your training days to just weightlifting. So, and, and Wagner's a hell of a fucking competitor and the dude's ripped, but you look at, at it and you go like, okay, and if a guy on that level is telling you that six days of jujitsu is not enough, you would actually be better off doing three to four days of jujitsu and lifting twice a week. You should probably listen. You know what I mean? So there's my rant. Yeah, no worries. No, I love it because I, I wanted to get your opinion on it because you guys do both sides of it. But I do like that you, like you said, you don't jam it down anybody's throat. You're just saying we yeah. recommend that you if you are out of shape, that you work on this stuff. But if you want to do some jujitsu, come do some jujitsu. If you want to get into some self-defense stuff, do the hybrid class. So I think, I think it goes back to context, right? We already talked about it, but it it really matters your context, and everybody's context is different. That's why I like your approach to your courses. You're very much a coach, and I and I try to make this distinction a lot. Um, you know, in my line of work. You know, when I'm teaching other individuals, I want to be a coach. I'm striving to be a coach. I'm not striving to be an instructor. And we see it so often in law enforcement where there's this blanket standardized approach and we don't have any yeah. input on the individual because everybody's struggle, everybody's issues are going to be different. And we have to be able to, if we're, if we're as knowledgeable as we say we are on this 
particular topic to where we're standing in front of a group of people, then we have to be able to problem solve and troubleshoot some of these problems to the individual. And uh, having taken your class with knife control concepts, I can definitely say you fit that mold perfectly. Let's talk about uh, Mike Cheney, Eli Knight, the program itself. Yeah. What is the purpose? Who is the course for? You know, what kind of students are you guys getting in these classes? Yeah, so uh, uh, as far as the KCC program goes, our knife control concepts, um, we the, the the best way that I can describe this to anybody listening that has any idea of fighting, and maybe even if you don't know anything about fighting, is we deconstructed knife defense. And what I mean by that is we went after the hardest part of what I believe that happens with knife encounters. And that's when I'm stuck in an entanglement. I can't just leave. So it's easy enough to say, just run away or just shoot them or whatever the hell you want to think. But if I'm already latched onto somebody, there's a skill set that's missing in a lot of cases. And it's going to be a practical approach to using grappling against a blade. So that's where KCC started. So in our KCC one program, uh, we look at stand up on day one, ground on the second day, and it's a pragmatic approach to surviving the entanglement, surviving and thriving in the entanglement to then get to whatever we need to do, whether it's handcuffing or striking or weapons access or just running away. Um, and then in KCC2, we start to expand out into those other areas, which is striking inside control, um, you know, even disarms and bur- breaks and that type of stuff. So the KCC program, when it started, it actually started because I was training a group of uh, personal protection, uh, uh, well, personal protection group, group of personal protection people. Anyway, a personal protection group. And I only had them once a month for four hours. And so the difficulty was, you know, you learn for four hours, you don't train it for 27 days. And now all of a sudden you don't even remember what the hell you worked on. So I was coming up with ways to actually get them to learn. So the, the basis of KCC was actually built off transfer of knowledge how do i actually change people versus just present them with a bunch of information so that's how kcc came about and i started with just a stand-up program i started teaching that and then um i invited eli knight who was doing at the time bladed grappler he came out he was doing his bladed grappler on day two i was doing kcc on day one and then him mike cheney and i were sitting around and going like man there i think there's a different approach to the ground that we could get after and that's essentially what started to develop the ground game for us for KCC and since then the three of us have put these programs together now, as far as who the course is for you know the the generic answer is it's for everybody we've had I've never fought before and I'm 60 years old all the way down to you know a 20 year old black belt in jiu-jitsu um, and they're all getting a ton out of it now that said who is it really for it's really for somebody that understands that getting good at something as dangerous as dealing with a knife takes time, takes commitment and takes a hell of a lot of work. And that's not everybody. Um, so somebody that can come into it, open-minded, be okay, be in a little bit out of the water, no matter what they know and willing to work hard to actually develop a skill set that can help them survive in a knife or it transfers into gun and everything else as well. But in that case, that's really what we're looking for. And our marketing follows that way. We don't have, I have yet to find somebody that showed up to our course because you, you were in it. It's fucking hard. I mean, it's six hours of wrestling every, you know, both days. So it's 12 hours of wrestling. It's hard. I don't care who you are. Wrestling's wrestling. It sucks. Um, and so I have yet to find anybody that's given up that's like stopped and been like, this is too much work. Like everybody that we've got to come through the door, they're like halfway through looking dead, but they're like, all 
all right, cool, what's the next drill? And they're going after it, and they're going after it, and they show up day two, and we warm up, and they go after it. So we're getting the people that are willing to work for something that they, they realize is of actual value. It's just a legitimate skill set, not a series of, you know, uh, uh, fancy, overly confident techniques that aren't realistically going to happen. It's work. It's hard work, and it's teaching how to fight. Um, so that's who we're getting, and and they're finding huge benefits from it. I mean, we've had more BJJ black belts go through this program uh, than any other program I've ever done, and these are supposed to be the cream of the crop guys and guys that are former like high level wrestlers, and they're all going, you know, holy shit, this is because it's specific to the topic. They're not reinventing the wheel. It's this is everything you need for this, and they're going, holy shit, like the way you're running this is really nice. So it's been very exciting. It's a hell of a program. And we've already taught it in like 16 states. We're adding three more next year already, and and uh, we'll have a bunch of other ones. And then we always have the training camp, which is the one that you came out to uh, every June or July here in Columbus. Yeah, I cannot speak highly enough of KCC. You guys do an incredible job. And I know when I went, it just – it was an incredible class. I had awesome partners. We were working hard. Like you said, it's a hard class. But it wasn't to the point where – I didn't feel like I was getting beaten down. You have positive instructors that are yes. reinforcing the stuff. You guys are coming around one-on-one attention, which I found to be um, incredibly helpful for me. And and then a couple of the takeaways that, like you like you already discussed in the class, th- those aha moments. I had a I had a lot of them in that class, and that's that's not super common. I go to a lot of training, right? I, I I'm required to through my job, and as an instructor, I get continued continued education training all the time and I went through your class on something I I know nothing about knife attacks and I and I went into it with that mindset but I felt like just like when I went through Craig Douglas's ECQC course I remembered a lot of it because of the approach because of the organization of the curriculum I thought it was like man I really remember a lot of this stuff to this day and I need to go back through it I need to refresh um and and reference the online stuff that you guys have put out but I thought it was like the shirt grab, for instance. Let's address the fact that most attacks are right-handed and like this bowling ball technique, right? You guys are recognizing what the common attacks are, and you're not coming up with a formulaic approach to every single type yeah. of knife attack. We're doing these flow drills that are reinforcing it, and I feel physically as i'm going through it that i'm really learning these techniques i love the approach can you talk about the flow drills can you talk about what went behind that the winning 80 percent of the time i love that as well yeah so that's the one thing and in in you know to your point there's a there's a difference between approaching a seminar you're putting together as let me show you how much i know and approaching a seminar as i want you to get better and that's that's a it's two completely different ways right i could come in and go hey let's do a knife defense seminar and show you 50 techniques and i know 50 techniques but you're not going to get any better the idea is like how how do we actually actually legitimately improve people every person we touch we actually improve them and a couple of things come to mind with that first off having it be as simplistic and conceptual as possible i think that's a big part i don't want things to be big and overly complicated i need them to be simple i need people to understand them so that's a huge piece once you have that then creating a system of building blocks where you're learning from this piece and then adding this piece and then adding this piece so we're only learning little bits at a time kind of like a minimum effective dose um 
way to do it. And then the real kicker, what's really going to get people to do it is getting high repetition. And so we built the system around that. It's like, why teach these things if we can't actually change people? And if we're going to change people, these are the things we need to do. And so that's one of the things that developed the flow drills, which as you're mentioning. And the idea is, is really simple. Things don't happen statically. So the way we approach it is in the KCC1, the stand-up curriculum, we have four positions we teach in stand-up. So we're going to teach you position one, position two, whatever those two are, the transition between them. And now let's transition back and forth between those in a flow drill. And then we'll add a third position and transition between those in a flow drill. And then that way you're dynamically learning the position as opposed to this is a baseball bat two-on-one. This is an outside two-on-one. This is the back position. And you're learning them very static or you just magically ended up there. So we're creating energy. Once you start to get that, we go by what we refer to as the meaningful intensity principle or you know, 80-20, which is you should be winning the majority of the time when you're training and you still need to be running against resistance and losing. So the, the idea is really simple. Once you've done a drill very well, we add a layer of resistance, one layer of resistance at a time to make it a little more difficult to challenge your brain. So let's say you're moving from a frontside two-on-one to an outside two-on-one and you're killing it, smoke checked. Now all of a sudden, hey, the guy's going to start moving their feet around a lot more. So now you have to balance your weight while you're making these transitions and maintaining pressure. That starts looking good. You're hitting well above 80-20. You start to creep closer to 100% success on that. Perfect. Now the guy's going to start using that offhand to start posting and framing on you, but you still need to make the transition from the front side to the outside. Awesome. You're running through that 80-20 principle. That starts looking really freaking good. And now they're stabbing and now they're moving and now they're allowed to hit. And we add one layer and one layer and one layer to keep the friction on, but to also allow you the opportunity to actually absorb the information and do those skills, drills, and positions under actual energy which is what fighting is and it's variable it's never a static energy it's never a choreographed energy so we build that intensity over and over through those flow drills to create high amounts of repetition across a little simplistic amount of concepts against energy and and honestly it's a it's a magic equation when you look at it it's more concept based than than technically based yeah and i think that was the biggest eye-opening thing for me so i started out doing jujitsu, got put in charge of our defensive tactics program. I'm going about it in a very formulaic approach <clears throat> to, uh, excuse me, to the course. And I, over time, taking classes from, from Craig, from you, realizing the importance of concepts and realizing the importance of how we relay the information and how we reinforce it with those trainings is so important mm -hmm. to learning. And it was extremely eye-opening when I took those two courses. I think those are the two most impactful for me because I want to be able to emulate that in our own way like we discussed before and what's important for us in the context. But, man, it was, it was one of those things I was like, oh, this is how you teach self-defense. Guys, quick interruption. It's great to talk about self-defense, but if you want to get out on the mats and figure it out for yourself, go to forcefrontier.com, check out our combatives tab where we have several classes First one being on April 6th of 2024, Force Immersion for Civilians. If you don't know what this course is about, it's about giving you the skills and abilities necessary for that violent encounter. Specifically for those that carry every day, this is the course for you. Considerations while carrying concealed and understanding self-defense principles that will better prepare you for the fight ahead. Remember, guys, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So get prepared. Go to forcefrontier.com, register today. Let's get back to the episode. So Aaron, I got to ask, 
are knife people weird? You've done Cali. I mean, you've been through it. Do you do you find knife people to be a little more odd than the average individual? Uh, well, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I think anybody that is relatively committed to martial arts is a little more odd than the normal person. Um, but I also would then challenge your definition of weird and odd because <laughs> if I, if, if I wasn't weird and odd, I probably wouldn't, uh, do what I do. Uh, but that said, um, <laughs> our, our, <laughs> here's my, here's my in-depth, well-communicated and politically correct answer to this I think there is a, a uh, probability of finding eccentric and, uh, uh, as you would say, weird or uh, uh, odd people in all martial arts. I think the more that those martial arts find themselves dated back, the more eccentric you're going to find. So I think, uh, you know, I... Are you? Is there a higher probability that you're going to find very eccentric people that are obsessed with knife training? In my experience, that is correct. <laughs> okay, all right, that's all I wanted. <laughs> I think there's, I think weird and eccentric is in every art. Uh, but yes, calling uh, people. Okay, now I say this fully knowing that that they're not all the same, and there's plenty of completely you know uh, normal ones. People that are obsessed with any martial art happen to be weird in my opinion uh and that i'm obsessed with all martial arts but hey, people that are like kali is the way you know or jujitsu is the way like to me they're weird and they're missing a huge uh piece of the puzzle but i i do feel like people that are in uh traditional martial arts have been in traditional martial arts for a long time people that are in kali people that find themselves in like kind of weird systems like sistema and stuff like that they tend to be a little more uh bought in to what they're doing to a point that they're less open to outside thoughts. I wouldn't even say opinions, but even just thoughts. So that, that usually is what makes people weird and eccentric when it comes down to it is they're so ingrained in this one thing and they live it and die by it that when you try to have a normal conversation with them, they seem weird because they're always trying to prove their point through the same answer. It's like there's not a mixed answer. It's like, no, no, no the answer is Kali. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, but what if the guy just grabs my shirt, well, cut his face? It's like, I don't think that's the right answer. <laughs> like, you know, one of those type things. So, uh, okay. yes. All right, you, you answered know, it. Eccentric. I also believe, hold on, to this point, to this <laughs> point, I want to say one more thing. I think in arts like Kali, if you're really bought into it, and again, I love Kali. I'm going to say that, right? I love Kali, but I know what Kali is. And I think that's the thing too, is like, I usually will only talk about things that I've experienced and I've experienced enough Kali to say, like, I, I have a pretty decent understanding of Kali, um, to a certain extent. But when you get to a point where you're told something is the answer over and over and over again, it's really hard to admit that it's not the longer you're in it. So it's like taking a guy that's a black belt in karate and then having him experience one round against a decent wrestler or a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and, and he gets smothered. 
that's going to go one of three ways. They're either going to realize that what they've been doing was sunk cost and that's okay and maybe change their mind about it. They're going to be absolutely emotionally and morally crippled and just stop fighting, period. Or there's the other way, which is you actually, they actually become more embedded in their art because they're so afraid to say that it's not. I've spent, you I mean, I've spent 20 years doing this and it's not effective and most of it's, you know, not helping me. So I think that's what you run into with a lot of those guys is if they actually had to work hard and be practical and do like a more mixed version of fighting, like a knife, but this guy has a gun and he's willing to punch you in the face and he'll headbutt you and it doesn't look like a flow drill. I think it's harder for them sometimes, so they get a little bit weird. But I don't know. That's just my opinion. That's solely my opinion. No, and I think you hit it on the head because it's it's not it's not knife people, but the, like they're out there, right? But I mean, it is people. <laughs> they are out there. <laughs> people ingrained in this system and following it blindly, and there's no convincing them. That's why I appreciate people like you that think outside the box. You develop your own program, not for the sake of developing your own program. Because you feel like you ha- you are onto something. Hey, this is working for people. I've been teaching yeah. people. They're picking it up. It's effective in these high stress drills where we're putting on you know the Redbeard combatives helmets and we're going going at it. It's actually working. So I think when you've pressure tested ultimately what are theories to you, I think it goes a long way. And I and and I think anybody that is looking for a real self-defense class, you need to you need to stick with, at least in my experience, stick with the guys that have put in the hard work like Aaron, like Craig. Uh, we had Ruben on the show yesterday. Ruben. Guys that actually, yeah. like, they understand that these things are violent and they're not just, there's not this approach that you can just do this perfect technique for this specific interaction. And that's something that, for me as a police officer, having been in, you know, these physical altercations, I'm like, these things are, I mean, you are jacked up. This is, it could be life or death. And you got to be able to control your emotions. You got to be able to identify when there's a weapon. There's so many variables that a lot of martial arts don't address, but that's the whole point, right? Martial arts for the sport. I love jujitsu. Like you said, love jujitsu, love the sport, watch it all the time. But there is a point where you have to address the unknown or when a weapon's involved and do I want to, obviously I don't want to be on my back. I want to be on top. So I think when you look at it in that context and you look at it through that lens, it, it just opens your eyes to more things. And if you're closed minded and you're following these martial arts blindly, you do run into some issues where you could be exposed. Like you said, if you put somebody doing Taekwondo or a striking art against, you know, a pretty good wrestler, it's, probably not going to go well for them if they get their hands on them. So I I think that is something that is worth noting and eccentric is definitely the right word. I will, I will, I'm going to erase weird now. I'm going to put eccentric because I think you're, I I mean, don't get me wrong. I like weird and I understand weird, but I I also think I'm weird. So to me, when somebody says like weird, I'm like, yeah, like what's, let's get weird. Like I'm all about that life. (laughs) So I don't, I don't take weird as an insult, but, I know somebody listening to this podcast, will go, oh, dear, you call knife people weird. And it's like, come on. Like you carry around a, if you carry a crambit, you're weird and that's okay. That's okay. As long as you can admit it, but don't tell me of all of the knife choices that you could carry around. 
that the most practical and functional in any way, shape, or form is a crambit. No, so that makes you weird. If you're not normal, you're weird. So you're weird. Just accept it. You paid four hundred dollars for a crambit. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I dude. That's my thing with knives. I actually said this, uh, uh, I think I said it to Craig when we were in Florida, but I was like, hey, everybody's got a knife. You know what I mean? Like Craig's got knives. It's like really, really cool knives. And then my buddy Ryan Hoover started making knives. And then I saw uh, Raul Martinez has a knife now. And I was like, I need a knife. Apparently that's the next step in my self-defense and uh, you know coach journey. So, but I'm going to target a different market because let's be real, if I ever actually do have to stab somebody they're probably going to take my knife as evidence (laughs) i don't want them to take a 200 hundred dollar knife so i'm gonna make i'm gonna corner the market on a sturdy self-defense knife that retails at like (laughs) 39.99 a throwaway knife (laughs) and that's gonna be my market perfect that's all you need it's just gotta have a point it's just gotta be stabby you know what i mean like don't don't make this anything more than it is i'm not gonna if i pull a knife on somebody even with collie training and background I, I'm not doing Kali. I'm going to viciously and aggressively like a crackhead stab you in the face with the knife until I get what I want. And then when they take my knife, I won't feel bad about my $40 knife getting. It's, so it's, that's going to be my thing. So if you carry a $400 knife to defend yourself, you're weird. And that's okay. Be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like and it. And gun guys are no better, by the oh, way. Oh, absolutely not. So if you're listening not. to this and you're a gun absolutely guy. Not. Yeah. And you're like, you're like, oh, yeah, those <laughs> knife guys are weird. Bro. If you are freaking appendix carrying a staccato around, you have the $2,000 gun on your hip to defend yourself when a Glock 48 with some sights or with a red dot might be perfectly fine for you, Factory. Like, you're weird too. And that's okay. Just admit that you're weird. (laughs) Exactly. And, dude, you nailed it. The staccato people are are taking over, man. it's I, and I don't understand it. It's hey, a nice a, gun. It's, it's a, a very sexy nice gun. gun. It's sexy the gun. sexy gun. I want to shoot it, but again, I I got it. Like I'm carrying around a you know a fucking sig, man. That's all I need. Give me a sig. It I, it points. It shoots. It makes holes. If we go statistically speaking, I'm probably going to be shooting within you know whatever fucking six to twelve feet. I don't need a staccato <laughs> to put a bunch of holes in somebody with a nine millimeter round from 12 feet away. And then I lose my gun after that. It's like, come on, man. But that's just me. I'm also, I also grew up poor in Youngstown. So like the thought of spending that much money on something that might get taken away from me, I'm like, ah, screw it. Oh, I, I know. Do just, I do just fine. You know, I'll do just fine with the factory model used. <laughs> like give me some, give me something that some guy just is like, Hey, I don't want this gun anymore. Actually, the two fanciest guns that I have, a buddy of mine tricked him out and he had them. And then he was like, Hey, I've moved on to bigger and better things. Are you interested in these? And I was like, fuck yeah. So I like got really nice guns at like factory MSRP <laughs> that somebody else tricked out for me. And that was the best way. But yeah, that shit cracks me up. No. But anyway, yeah, you're weird and it's fine. You're just a high end weird. That's it. You think you're James Bond or something. I don't know. But if you're spending four hundred dollars on a crambit, at least go out and train as well. That's that's all we're saying. Just get out there and oh train. Oh my god! Yeah. Spend your money You'll how learn you want to throw spend a punch it. and wrestle. Yep. Yeah. Learn how to do some Greco-Roman wrestling and some punching, and then uh, yeah, you'll still be weird for carrying a four hundred dollar knife. But after probably doing wrestling and striking, you might decide to carry a hundred dollar knife. <laughs> <laughs> right. After that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Aaron, I want to talk about that was a good question. That was, it was, it <laughs> led to a lot of, I mean, that was a great conversation right there. So, um, 
you're pulling out a lot of you're pulling on some strings that apparently I haven't talked about in a while because I'm getting it, real excited. It's fun okay, to do anyway, that because me and Ruben did the same thing, and I asked him about TikTok cops. So uh, that's a t- hot button topic <laughs> for us. So. <laughs> yeah 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 um i want to talk about your book because you literally wrote the book on active killer situations we did uh our first episode all about mass casualty events and i want to oh, talk about your book and it's a heavy topic but i think it's something that you know we're trying to bring awareness to how we, how can we prepare to, for these types of events what do they look like what do the statistics tell us what do the statistics not tell us? Because there's plenty of things that are not reported that are excluded from FBI statistics, and we want to make that clear. Because um, a lot of people, I did a presentation on this, and guys were like, "Oh, wow, I didn't." It's actually kind of low, and I'm like, "Well, you got to understand that domestic situations are not included in these statistics, and they make up over half of all church-related shootings, for instance." So, um, how'd you get started on the book? What led you to um, kind of go down that journey and, and want to want to uh, research this topic? Totally. Before I lose this thought, I also want to point out when you talk about like statistics and things like that is all of the statistics that we pull from, even if you look at the FBI research and stuff like that, and we might come back to this, but I'll totally forget if I don't, uh, are all based off of primarily for the most part, successful shootings, right? We want to learn how to prevent these things or stop them before they come things. And when we do that really well, Rarely is that reported or put into a statistic, right? So, like, we don't have the FBI statistic of how many active shooter situations were thwarted before they ever became active shooter situations because they were thwarted before they came active shooter situations. And that steers training a lot of times if we're so obsessed with with just the statistics side of things. Because we're looking – you're staring into a black hole of negative statistics trying to solve a problem that might not be in the statistics. So anyway, I had that thought as we were going, and then that's one of the topics we get into. But um, as far as how I got into uh, the realm of teaching this topic, uh, when I started in Krav Maga back in 2008, one of the instructors at our uh, facility, his name was Matt Kissel, um, and I believe he was a sergeant in the Hanna Police Department, which is a local precinct out here. Um, I think he was on a SWAT team, some other, he was, he was very high level, a very good, like he's a cop. I want, you know what I mean? On my side, the dude did jujitsu and he did Krav Maga and he did boxing. He was a hell of a boxer. Um, he had a background in Taekwondo, hell of a shooter. He was a firearms instructor. I'm pretty sure I might be misquoting here, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, he was on the sniper team. Um, so I mean like the dude was good. So if you're going to learn from a guy and you want a guy protecting you, like that's the guy I want. But anyway, he would run uh, – at the time, you got to think, like 2008, we, we usually refer to these situations as workplace violence or school shootings. We didn't really – we didn't – the term active shooter, active killer uh, really hadn't bid in yet. Um, so he would run workplace violence and school shooting seminars uh, at the gym. And, and it, it was still the old school version of it, uh, kind of like what you see with Alice, <laughs> which is like, hey, guy comes through the door, everybody throws some shit at him and tackle him, and let's look at it as a group kind of approach. But I started, I took one or two of those courses as a participant, and then as a as an instructor at the facility, then it was like, hey, can you help us run these? And the first couple times you do it, you're the bad guy, right? So I'm the guy getting smoked, uh, you know, by a bunch of people. And then, you know, but I, you know, so I'm sitting in on these over and over again, and I'm seeing what he's saying statistically, and I'm really absorbing the information because I'm being presented with it a ton. And then little by little, it's like, 
you start talking about it more and then, hey, we want to run these courses. So then I'm getting involved in the teaching side of things. And so that's like 2008 to about 2010-ish maybe in that realm. And then, uh, you know, you fast forward a little bit. I took a couple of other courses on active shooter stuff. Um, Rob Pincus had been running one that he was calling uh, uh, SARC because there's an acronym for everything in this this world, uh, a school attacker response course. So I took that course. It was an instructor-level course. I took that with him. Um, I took the ALICE program, learned a little bit more about that. So I was just taking a lot of information in. But again, like I said earlier, as a coach, and especially during that era, I had a ton of time. And so I was, I mean, I was reading as many books as I could and watching things and training and, you know, taking privates and going to different gyms and learning from different coaches as much as I could. And, and the active shooter program where the school attacker stuff was, was a hot button topic. Um, so I wanted to be more knowledgeable on it. I started learning a little bit about different things there. So then you fast forward to, I had run a couple of courses on my own at that point, but you fast forward to 2015. End of 2015 is when you have uh, the Bataclan theater attack in Paris, the the uh, choreographed Paris attacks, and then you have um, San Bernardino, which you know within just a couple weeks of each other, um, it, it just it really hit, and that seemed to be when people started realizing, you know, with as many situations that had happened, they started to actually realize like, oh shit, maybe I have to do something. Maybe just sitting around and waiting isn't the answer, um, and so that's kind of started to resonate in people so we ran an, a, an active shooter course we essentially put it out to the public uh in hilliard which is the the suburb we're in and we just said hey listen we're gonna run a course on dealing with active shooters it's gonna be a two-hour course it's completely free i think it was a tuesday night it was like right after san bernardino happened it was a tuesday night and we had like 50 people show up totally free two hours so i i ran uh just like we've talked about my interpretation of all of these other people that came before me and the information I had developed or, or been exposed to beforehand, I ran my interpretation of it. We added a lot more physical fighting drills and, and some stuff like that. <clears throat> um, and everybody just loved it and it really hit home. And a lot of people said like, wow, I didn't realize I needed self-defense. And so that to me was pretty exciting. So we got some more people that way. And then we ran another one. And one of our guys at the gym, um, he's since uh, moved, but he's a good friend of ours. Uh, actually, you met him, Ward Heine. He's the one that videotapes yeah. all of our KCC stuff for the training camp. Ward is a, an incredible instructor, incredible practitioner in his own right, um, but he's also an amazing videographer. And him and the troop that he was working with said, you know, hey, can we come film your class? We think it'll make for a good mini doc. So I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So he came in and filmed the next one that we did, and it was about uh, – I think we went two and a half hours that night. And the way that it worked at the time – was I gave like a really brief whiteboard lecture on your primary things, like our extrapolated or expanded version of run, hide, fight. And then after that, we went into fighting drills. So it was like, let's hit some pads. Let's smash some pads on the floor. Let's wrestle a little bit. Let's, uh, uh, you know, deal with grabbing onto a gun and fighting over a gun. Not even techniques, just learning to wrestle with it. And then at the end of it, we ran scenarios. And at the time, we didn't have sim guns. We didn't have force on force. We didn't have UTMs. We didn't have blanks, none of that shit. So we literally had a guy in a high gear suit with a plastic gun, a rubber trainer, and a guy running behind him with focus mitts clapping to make loud bang bang noises. Like that was the level we were working at, but it got the effect across and we would run people through like two or three scenarios and let them, you know, deal with certain things and, and all that type of stuff. So they took that video. They uh, came back, interviewed me the next day, asked me a couple of questions. They made like a three minute video 
and they published it uh, um, December of that year. I think it was like December 10th or something like that. And so this is 2015 still. And it went viral. A couple of million views and shares and comments all over the place. And we started getting phone calls left and right. Uh, CBS Evening News, a bunch of other people. And we were getting phone calls from businesses and gyms asking if we traveled with the program. And so anyway, long story short, we didn't. But the, you know, the obvious answer that any good business owner will tell you is if a bunch of people ask you if you do something, you say yes, and then you figure it out. So we were like, fuck yeah, we travel with this. So in 2016, I taught more than 80 of those seminars, ranging from two hours to six hours uh, in uh, something like 30 states. I mean, it, I traveled so much that year. It was, it was, it was a lot. Um, we started our very first one was in Oregon. And but I would teach like, you know, here in Columbus, I would teach like four or five in a day. I'd go to this business, to this business, this business. And so what ended up ha happening was I had a very unique opportunity over the span of a year and 80 seminars working with anywhere from 10 to 50 people in a seminar to actually test what we're talking about. Is it holding up in every seminar? What new things am I learning from other seminars I'm taking and things that we're seeing? And, and now all of a sudden in 2016, you start seeing, you know, yes, there's an uptick and a rise in these shootings. So now we're learning more about the statistics. We're learning more about the police reports coming out afterwards and what are some of the MOs and what are some of the things we're seeing? We're starting to see trends. We're learning about malfunctions with the weapons. We're learning about different ways that people react. And now we're starting to pull in the psychology and we're starting to have those discussions. And then we start realizing that, oh, shit. Maybe the public should know how to apply tourniquets. And now all of a sudden the medical training is starting to, to take a foresight. And this is all happening over this year. We're out actively testing, retesting, analyzing, reassessing, changing drills. And so we had literally a year of, I don't, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think anybody else taught as many seminars in one year as we did in 2016. And that gave us an opportunity to, to actually look at it and go like, what questions do people have of what is working? What isn't working? What were we wrong about? And I think that's a big thing. Like you were talking about earlier, a lot of these active shooter presentations are usually given in a PowerPoint format. They're very, this somebody told me to say this and I'm saying it. We were going out going, I don't know if this is right. God, please. I hope this is the best information we can give them, you know, worried every time we did it, that we were doing okay and trying to get better at it. And what was beautiful about it was we actually got reps, you know, at KCC, KCC, we've been doing this for, uh, uh, four years now and we've taught 27. So I got 80 in a year and on the program I'm working on now, you know, we've only done 27 in like four or five years. So like we really had an intricate view at it. So I spent that entire year. Yeah, I was running the business and I was teaching classes. But honestly, man, I spent 2016 deep diving into this, into psychology, into shooters, into school shootings, work shootings. What were the demographics? Learning all the stories, the statistics, top to bottom, seeing the trends actively take place. So I was in a really uh, unique space to be able to like pull in information, see what's actually working in training, what's not working in training, learn from some of the statistics coming out, but to also be there at the time where people were actually looking for the training. And that was, that only lasted about a year and a half, which kind of sucks, but it is what it is. So anyway, at the end of 2016, 
you know, you're just struggling. You're trying to think like, how the hell do we get this information to more people? And I happened to be talking to a buddy of mine and I said, man, I, I feel like I should write a book on this because I feel like, you know, we're in a space for civilian training that I don't know that anybody else has put this much time and such a short period of time, you know, into to what's happening here um, to, to write it. And uh, he actually just looked at me and was like, well, why don't you get up one hour early every day and write? And I was like, okay, cool. So January 1st, 2017, I woke up, you know, after staying up and, and all that type shit, I woke up an hour early and I started writing and I wrote every single day for an hour for six months, um, going back, rewriting, changing things, you know, new things are happening in that six months. So I'm going back and adding chapters. I pulled in a bunch of other people to help write for the book. Um, all this type of stuff. And then in June of, of 2017, I finally said, like, if I don't step away from this, I'm going to lose my mind. Uh, so I sent the manuscript out to get edited. And then uh, we did pre-orders. And, you know, while the book covers getting made and all that type of stuff, and the book actually was released the end of 2017. And, you know, yeah, there's certainly some things that I would change about the way I wrote it, uh, knowing what I know about communication and language and things now. Um, in that same exact regard, that book's good. Um, and it's good. You know, I don't want to take away from the time and effort that I put into it. It's good because so many people's brains were put into that book. Like I'm the one who wrote it, but I mean, I'm pulling information from Craig. I'm pulling information from Ryan Hoover. I'm pulling information from, you know, guys that were running programs way before that. Um, you know, and, and, and then I'm pulling information from psychology and I was talking to you know people that do victim relief and stuff like that and like learning that side of it like fuck dude like what happens after the fact um talking to financial advisors like hey man have you ever dealt with crisis situations and now all of a sudden your money's got to go here 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 that you weren't anticipating because you got shot and now you're out of work for six months and is your work going to cover you so it was, it was just a very so many amazing people that I ended up having access to were able to to share information with me and I was able to commit and sit down and put it all into one book. Um, so yeah, I, man, I, I, that was, it was an intense year, uh, of training and, and, you know, an intense year of putting that book together that I, man, I haven't talked about the book in a bit. And like, I, how you can see, like I get real, like that was an experience for me. It wasn't just a book. You know what I mean? It was, I learned a lot about being a coach and a lot about people and a lot about violence. And it changed the way that I, uh, you know, talk to my wife about things and, and, you know, how, how I approached protecting my own kids. Yes. It was, it was a very powerful experience for me and I'm glad I was able to, to put it into a written format that, um, you know, hopefully is going on and helping others. So I have no idea if that answers your question, but no, that was great. That was great, Aaron. <laughs> and, and for our that listeners, was, that's, the, yeah. the book is how to survive an active killer An honest look at your role in the age of mass violence. Found it on, you can find it on Amazon anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can order uh, on Amazon. You obviously you can get like paperback or Kindle version that way. Um, or, you know, if you're okay with just like a digital PDF version, um, I sell a digital PDF version through uh, my website. That's no, awesome, man. I, I plan to look into it because I've it's been kind of on my list of books to read for a little bit now. So I definitely want to dive into it because it's something that we've, like I said, I, I've been asked to speak a few times on this topic now and it's not fun, but you know, we want to look at, you know, you mentioned statistics and, and kind of this, the issues that come with that. Cause you're just looking at all these negative statistics, what's reported, what's not. 
and I really like looking into individual encounters and what came from those, how do we improve on those, what went really well. Um, and I tried to talk about that a little bit. I actually spoke for, it was a, it was a task force for the FBI that came in, um, to the Dayton, Ohio area. And they wanted us to put on a, uh, on a, uh, presentation and it was kind of, it was kind of odd. Um, department of justice putting it on and I don't know, they just didn't like certain aspects of my presentation, but then again, they should have read it ahead of time, but I was trying to be as honest and blunt as possible. And I don't think they appreciated that. So yeah. anywho, uh, a side rant, but, um, I think you got to be honest with people. You, you gotta, you gotta look at, you know, not only the, the negatives, like you said, but what, what are the positive ones that came from this that are not getting reported? And it's, I'm sure, yeah. as you know, better than anybody exhausting, trying to keep up with all of that. Oh yeah. And also emotionally draining just cause it's not a fun topic. Um, but oh, your dedication to it the, is definitely Do you remember the New Zealand one? Do you remember the New Zealand shooting? The guy in the, in the, the mosque? Uh, yeah, yeah. Dude, that yes. was, yes. that, so that man, he, he videoed the whole thing and, and, uh, unfortunately slash, I guess, fortunately I was able to, to get access to that video. And that was, that was, that broke me. Uh, like I'm actually kind of getting emotional about it. That was fucked. Um, and you don't realize how much of that shit, you know, and again, I'm watching it through video, man. So I don't, uh, you know, anybody who's a law enforcement officer and, and first responder in general, like, you know, y'all, y'all are rolling up on shit that, uh, you know, I'm the guy Monday morning quarterback and right. on the outside, I have a skill set. I try to share that skill set and help, but man, like you don't, you don't realize you almost become numb to it at certain points. Cause, cause if you are committed to it, you know, you watch a ton of dash cam footage and body cam footage and security camera footage. And I think you have to get to keep looking at it, you almost have to get numb to it. And, you know, cause you're trying to pull statistics out of it and fuck man. But, but that one, that made me realize two things. First and foremost, how, how much watching video like that was wearing on me. And it, it, it I don't think it had hit me yet. Um, but then it also, there was like almost a sadness cause it was like, fuck, I can watch to that point. I could watch a video and be completely removed from it emotionally, like watching somebody get murdered and you're like, fuck dude, how did you end up there? But it's like, man, it's like these, these coping mechanisms go with it. But anyway, yeah, that's a total side note with that. But you know, I, you said something I think super important about this and it's like, you have to be honest and that's a double-edged sword because as a law enforcement officer for you, especially if you're brought in by a task force, it's like, yeah, like you're, you obviously have some freedom to say some certain things, but then there's also an expectation around you, right? Um, it's no different than what well, it's, it's a little different, but like, if I go to an Alice program that's put on by a local police department and it's put on in a city building, they, it is unlikely that they're going to get away with having actual legitimate hard conversations because they're public servants. They have to follow the rules of a department. You know, they can't come out and say, hey, listen, if a 13-year-old kid pulls a gun on you, you might need to kill that kid. You know what I mean? And it's just like – so you can't – like you have these deep conversations, whereas I think that was one of the benefits of us essentially operating as a, a – you know, we did a lot of shit for free and a lot of pro bono and lost money on a lot of stuff, but – as a, as a for-profit independent organization, 
is we would tell people straight up, like, look, we're going to come in. These are the conversations we're going to have. Are you sure you want this? And they were like, yes. And we would come in and we would have hard conversations, like hard ones. Like, oh, you're a school teacher. Your entire life was built around nurturing a small child. And now all of a sudden you're staring down the barrel of a gun and you get to make the decision whether the the person with the gun who might be 13, 14, 15 years old kills 10 people in your class, so 10 kids, or you have the wherewithal to potentially bludgeon a 14-year-old kid to death. Well, we'll just pin him down, okay? What do you know about pinning people down? Do you know how fucking hard it is to control someone one-on-one? And if you've never done it before, it's really freaking hard. You know know how big 14-year-olds are these days? It's nuts. So it's like you have these conversations where people actually have to come to reality, and that's not common in in, in bigger, more uh, organized settings because it's people don't want it as much. You know what I mean? But those are the conversations, to your point, that that have to be had. You know, like the idea that uh, you know, you look at like think of Pulse nightclub. I, I write about this in the book, but in Pulse nightclub, there's reports of a couple of people had snuck out one of the exits and. The, the way the exit was, they were kind of, it was like a tight alley up against a fence. So it's like the back of the building is here and then the, the fence is pretty tight there and it was getting filled and it was slowing their ability to get away. So people actually shut the door from the outside and kept the door shut while innocent people on the inside were trying to get out. And you, you look at that and you go like, how could they do that to somebody? And it's like, are you serious? Do you have kids? Do you want to get home and see your kids? And if I tell you there's a 50% probability that if that door opens up behind those innocent people, there's somebody with a gun, you're not telling me you wouldn't at least think about that. And so there's a psychology side to it that it's tough to have those conversations and in the realities of violence. We're not talking about your rational brain right now. We're talking about you freaking the hell out because you just watched seven people get murdered. So yeah, man, those conversations are tough and, and you you. you you know, you don't walk in and go, hey, pay me five grand to give you a presentation on active shooter to feel good about yourself. But, oh, by the way, we're going to have some terrible conversations that are going to make you feel awful. Right. It's, it's tough, man. So, but it's, if you're going to get better, those are the conversations you have to have. So, but anyway. No, absolutely. I mean, you kind of brought the the show down a little bit with that, but um, bringing it back, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's the reality of the active, so active let's talk killer about topic. Weird people again. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to, you know yeah. what? Coping mechanisms, all that good stuff. Not easy. You can't have fun. You can't really have fun talking about active shooters. Like no. if you do, then you are definitely fucking weird. No, that <sighs> I like it. <laughs> Aaron, <laughs> there you go. I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on here, man. You've been, um, you know, like I said, somebody I've looked up to in the, in the, in the space. And, you know, we had conversations when I, when I was putting on kind of our big first class with force frontier. And I remember having this conversation with you and I was disappointed at the turnout that we had. And I'm like, how do I push this? How do I grow this business? And you said, just put on the best class you can put on. I mean, make, blow these guys away. And, and I meant to follow up with you on that because we had that class back in, um, what was it? February. And it went amazing. We had great students. It was an incredible time. And the next two classes that we put on sold out. So I was like getting in my own head, but I was trying to do the things that, you know, you, you and I had talked about. And I want to say that not, you know, not only are you a great teacher, but also an incredible person, um, somebody that, you know, took your time out of your day to talk to me about that. And it really helped because I mean, like I said, he's like, I was like, 
let's just put on the best class. Aaron's right. And it went it went amazing. It was so much fun. Great students. So I wanted to I wanted to follow up with you on that, kind of getting on more of a high note. Awesome, man. I'm pumped for you. We need more. That's the thing I think that a lot of people forget. Like you get in this this space and you want to do well and you want to be successful and all that type of stuff. So you start focusing on your own and things like that. But you gotta realize there's so many people in this fucking country that need help. And if we're not helping each other become better and promoting each other and getting excited for each other, like how the hell are you going to reach those people? Like I'm going to see maybe, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll, I'll be face to face with 5,000 people in a year. Maybe that's like a big year. Right. So if I'm face to face with 5,000 people, that's nothing, man. That's a drop in the bucket. So we need more program. I'm pumped to hear that you, that y'all are doing great because we need more programs, getting out there, experimenting with stuff, doing the good work, continuing to learn and just getting bigger i the, the whole idea of like this is my territory reply it's just such bullshit it's old it's old school alpha bullshit crap man it's like so exciting to see new programs putting work in and getting information to people so i'm pumped for you man that's awesome and and i know i've said it before and i'll say it again you know however i can help with that i'm i'm, I'm all ears and i'm happy to do it no, I appreciate that, dude. And and I appreciate you coming on the show. Plug your stuff, KCC, Endeavor. Where can people find you? Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, you can go to knifecontrolconcepts.com. You can also find us on Instagram at knifecontrolconcepts. Uh, you can find all of my antics and things like that uh, at Janetti Aaron. So my name backwards, J-A-N-N-E-T-T-I-A-A-R-O-N. Uh, um, you know, on that, it's different from that. And then if you're ever in the Columbus area, Endeavor Defense and Fitness uh, is our training center. We have jiu-jitsu, Krav Maga, steel mace training, boxing, kickboxing, CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, the whole nine. Um, and you can find all that uh, stuff on Instagram and online at EndeavorDCF. It's like dog, cat, fish. Um, dot com or at Endeavor DCF. So, uh, and then like you said, the book is available on Amazon if you're interested in, in getting a copy of the book. Um, and if you want to have us out for seminars, just hit us up. We travel. And myself, Mike Cheney is with me. He's freaking incredible. Um, he's he's the the head of our BJJ program, a phenomenal black belt. Just the way his mind works around martial arts and self-defense is just incredible. Um, you know, I hang out with the Fit to Fight crew down in in Charlotte a lot. Definitely check them out. Craig Douglas, Shiv Works, go check them out. Rugen Officers, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I get on me and then all the other people around me. So, But, yeah, man, uh, anything I can do to help and – any courses you want to come to, come hang out. And yeah, I, I promise you an amazing time, and I will give you 100% of myself for whatever time I'm with you. Yeah, absolutely, and I can attest to that. So make sure you guys check out you know, Endeavor Defensive Fitness, KCC, incredible program. They're traveling all over the place. You got dates coming up, so check out their calendar, guys, and make sure you sign up. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on, brother. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Your support means everything to us. And to show our gratitude for that support, if you guys leave us a review on Amazon, Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to this podcast from, leave us a review and it will automatically enter you into a chance to win a free Stealth 2.0 plate carrier from Shellback Tactical. Simple as that, guys. We cannot thank you enough for the support. And this show is a fun opportunity for us to give you a little bit more insight on who we are at Force Frontier and hopefully to talk about important topics that you guys find relevant in your lives as protectors. We plan on putting out a ton of episodes. So with that, guys, we're going to leave you, and we will see you on the next episode.